So um, this is Desert Island Books, and hopefully this will be the most interactive of our events because our panel is going to talk about uh, some of their favorite or most thought-provoking or just challenging books that they've been meaning to read. And we're dying to hear from you as well. And look, you have to be thinking, if you've got a suggestion um, uh, of your favorite books. Uh, so look, we'll get started. We have Martin Doyle, Emily Hurricane, and Carlo Gabler. So, Desert Island Books, I asked our panel to tell me their top three. Let's start with you, Carlo. The first one? No, anyone from your list. Okay. Actually, I'll suggest one, because I think it's a great one to start with, which is the poetry book. Helen Gardner's Oxford Book of English Verse, or Verse in English. Um, so, my choices were determined by the idea that I needed a resource that would go on giving, that I could ring and ring and ring pleasure from. So, an anthology that goes from um, Beowulf to, I think, Dylan Thomas, I think is the, I can't remember who the last person is. And the selection is extremely judicious. Uh, the, the apparatus is, is excellent and simple. When, are the per, when, are the, when is the writer born? When do they die? Something you need to know about them, but you're not overburdened. The arrangement is flawless. It's arranged chronologically, not in terms of when the poems were published. Um, that was a later change. And it was a book, you know, that will, it would be a book that would, would give me enormous pleasure. As I get older, I become less interested in fiction and more interested in non-fiction and poetry. Why and is that, Carlo? It's because you lose patience with the apparatus, the structure, the scaffolding, and the way of going about narrative that is characteristic of fiction. I mean, it's not that I don't like it, and I won't read it, but I, I want relief from what is what I've been saturated with for most of my reading life, because I've read a lot of fiction. And non-fiction is, and poetry, but non-fiction is going through a glorious phase at the moment. It offers completely unexpected ways of going about things. And is there a particular poem in this anthology which covers... Like, I mean, there have been three of those anthologies now, one in 1900, one in 1970, which is the one. And then the Helen Gardner is the one in one. the middle, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, so it's kind of a who's who from Wordsworth to, I mean, Shakespeare's sonnets to, as you say, you know, more recent poets. Mm -hmm. but, but is there a particular poem that you would go back to again and again? Well, Will, Wyatt's, they flee from me that sometime did me seek, stalking with naked feet into my chamber. Wyatt was an Elizabethan courtier, um, a Renaissance man, uh, probably a Hibernophile um, and a Catholic hater, and a beautiful poet. And he wrote magnificently about entropy and failure and decay, which I'm more and more interested in as I get closer <laughs> and closer. <laughs> 
but you've just heard Luke O'Neill say that we're reversing decay, aren't you? Really? <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me move on to, to you, Emily. Uh, give us one of your choices. Well, I picked, I picked in the most vulgar possible way. I picked, so if I had been asked to choose desert island food, I probably would have picked a pot of jam in terms of like massive calories and really easy release of calories. I slightly went for the book version of a massive pot of jam. I picked War and Peace. And on the way in, Carlo looked at it and he went, that's a terrible book. <laughs> and he may be right. I look forward to discovering the terribleness of this book. I need a big book. I don't know how long I'm going to be on this desert island for. I am assuming that there is nobody on the desert island with me, that it is just me and my books. In no, which case, we're there too. In that case, I definitely need a war and peace. It doesn't sound like a very deserted desert island. No, it sounds like a very cluttered desert island, albeit a very fun one, I grant you. I just, I, I went for a book. Okay, I read War and Peace when I was uh, about 18, maybe. And it's I the really... the Napoleonic Wars. It's the Napoleonic Wars, and it's set in Russia, and um, I was only interested in the peace bits. I was only interested in Natasha and how much she fell in love and, you know, how that worked out for her, not very well initially. Um, and the society bits and the kind of, you know, interpersonal relationships. I skipped all the war bits because they were just so boring. And so now I feel that I have read half of War and Peace. And the Desert Island is obviously a God-given opportunity to read all of War and Peace and discover how terrible it is. I look forward to that. It's going to be great. So have both of you read War and Peace, Martin? No, neither bit. <laughs> and you have and you think you don't... I have it. read War and Peace, yeah. Do you, did you like it? Oh, God, it's fantastic. You said it was terrible. Yeah, I know, but that was just... I was just being ludic. I was just stirring things up. You've succeeded. Um, I, yeah, the, 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 the war bits are boring. There's also a sort of 100-page thing at the end in which um, Tolstoy surveys you know, military history and, uh, yeah. Um, he was an incredible autodidact. I mean, he did also think that Shakespeare was a terrible writer, which, which I think entitles me to say it's a terrible <laughs> book. Um, Perhaps just the author had bad taste in other authors. Yeah, but the book itself, War and Peace, is, is fantastic. Um, I mean, I prefer Tolstoy's shorter fiction, but he said snootily but because um, it is too it bloody did, it, it is too bloody long <laughs> yeah but we're on a desert island it's yeah, completely yeah. perfect that's yeah. obviously what he wrote it for yeah poor souls yeah. cast yeah. adrift yeah yeah martin give um, us one of your choices okay so my first choice of favorite book to bring to a desert island perhaps counterintuitively hasn't been published yet um it's called after the dance by bridget o'connor but it's actually um, a compilation of two collections of short stories that she published in the 90s. Um, so Bridget O'Connor is a London Irish writer who I first interviewed uh, for the Irish Post um, when her first collection um, came out. Um, and, you know, I, I really liked it. Um, she's got a, you know, a great line in dialogue. She's very funny. Um, some of them are kind of inspired by kind of a London Irish background. Like she won the Time Out short story competition for a story called Postcards, which is um, about a, a mother and a daughter uh, living in Ireland whilst the father and the rest of the kids have gone to England. And you slowly realize that the mother is perhaps, you know, not very well. And sort of when the social worker calls, they play a game and the daughter who's t the narrator is hides in a cupboard, whatever, and then when the, the social worker has gone, you know, the mum shouts boo and whatever. And 
Um, they're a little off kilter. Very off kilter, and it's kind of like you know, you know, they're funny, but they're dark. Like her, her, her characters aren't always the nicest, or don't always behave in the best way. But there's there's this kind of a dark humour that sort of filters through it. Um, kind of reminds me a little bit of Martin McDonagh, another London Irish um, writer. Like she did a play called The Flags, which is put on here as well. Now, um, what's that about? Um, it's set on um, a beach. It's about two lifeguards sort of squabbling on a beach out of season in the west of Ireland somewhere. It might be, I'm not sure if it's into Donny. No, I think it's somewhere like Banister. I think it's Banistrand actually. Um, and just very funny sort of um, black, black comedy basically about relationships and bad behaviour and all the rest. Um, so Bridget's story is that I interviewed her again uh, for the Irish Times I think in 2007. Um, she wrote two very good short story collections, and then because of the nature of publishing, she was expected to write a novel. She got writer's block, couldn't finish the novel. But then, um, whilst teaching creative writing in Newcastle, she met Peter Strawn, uh, who's a screenwriter, a very successful screenwriter. So together, they formed a screenwriting partnership, and they wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which won a BAFTA. Tragically, it was a posthumous BAFTA for Bridget because she died of cancer, uh, I think in 2010. Um, and so that's why this book sort of means a lot to me. Like, you know, I did a series um, uh, in the Irish Times on Irish women writers for, I did a, Irish women, an Irish writer's poster that was exclusively female as opposed to exclusively male. And part of a side project to that was getting people to write about their favorite female writer. And I wrote about Bridget O'Connor because, not necessarily my favorite writer, but one that I felt was underappreciated and was kind of a bit outside the canon partly by being London Irish, I guess. Um, she was like a double whammy. She was a woman and she wasn't, although she partly was identified as Irish, it wasn't Irish enough according yeah, to the great like I think, you know, I've spoken in other contexts about, you know, if you're from the north of Ireland, you're mm -hmm. kind of outside the, you know, the, the central, you know, canon of the Irish nation. And likewise, if you're second generation Irish, if you're London or if you're Irish in Britain or Irish in America, you're kind of a, a little out of remove as well. Oh, but now stop. Coming from the north didn't hold Seamus Heaney back. Well, I think nobody... Well, I think there's a distinction between, <laughs> say, Seamus Heaney is Irish because he's won a Nobel Prize, but other writers from the north are northern Irish because they're perhaps less valued by some southern readers. Carlo, give us another of your choices. OK, so um, I picked Remembrance of Things Past because it's long. So that's Proust. Yeah, by Marcel Proust. Uh, which I have read. And if any of you are thinking of embarking on reading Proust, um, well, first of all, it's probably the most important reading experience of my life. It supersedes everything, including Joyce. Proust, I'm saying it, is greater than Joyce. Um, there are two... The, 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 the translator, the initial translator was Scott Moncrieff. And you used to be able to get on Audible, it'll probably come back, all of Remembrance of Things Past, read beautifully for free. So I downloaded it, and then I got... I, I couldn't get the Scott Moncrief edition. I got... It, Scott Moncrief's edition was subsequently re-edited by a man called Terence Kilmartin, who was connected with Kilmartin's, the, um, the bookies, the Irish bookies. And he did a beautiful reworking... He went, he, yeah, improved Scott Moncrieff. 
Um, and I would go for a walk every day, listen to an hour of Proust, and then come back, and bits I couldn't understand. I'd go to the Kilmartin. It wasn't exactly the same, because Kilmartin had changed, but it was close enough for me to... You know, I, I could untangle what I didn't understand. What's it about, Carla? Proust's book is about the fact that every, that you are a biological organism. You are like a seed. And without your knowing, everything is flooding into you and is contributing to the process of your becoming without your knowing. And as you mature, what happens is that you begin to understand the value and the meaning and the worth of all these sedimentary layers that have been laid down inside you. Or Proust uses the idea of the seed, the album, and the, 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 the wealth of nutrient that is inside the seed that enables it to grow. And the joy of being a human being is, is that one day you wake up and you realize that all of this content is inside you. If you're a writer, you can write about it. But if you're not a writer, it becomes what you are. And your job as a human being is to recognize what, what, is, what you are, which is the sum total of your lived life experience. The other great thing about the book is that many books tell you, you know, time passes. Two years later, the following day, when you read Proust, you actually have an in, uh, you, you sense in a way that no other fiction or no other writer that I've met does, you sense the passage of time. You sense mortality. You sense the way in which as organisms who are, you know, entities which are running down what it is like to move through time. Well, now, what I love about um, La Recherche de Ton Perdu, which is how he published it in the first instance, yeah. He couldn't get a publisher. He published it himself in the first instance, yeah. the first bit of the book, because it's a yeah. very it's Swan's way was self-published, yeah. yeah. Well, Did people just not get it? Um, the, other thing about, the other thing I would say about Proust is that people think that he was a sort of sniffy, um, deracinated, um, effete, uh, disconnected, didn't understand, you know class or any of those sorts of things. Because he was quite aristocratic. Yeah, yeah, he came from a posh, rich uh, French-Jewish family. The book is incredibly political. Uh, for a start, it's a full-on attack on French anti-Semitism. But it's also full of incredibly complex characters, working-class characters as well as... So it does have duchesses, but it also has chauffeurs or seamstresses. It, 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 it is a book that covers the whole breadth of human life. And it is very unfortunate that Proust is thought of as this effete kind of, you know, he only wrote about um, members of the aristocracy. Uh, it's very, very beautifully written. Uh, it's not difficult to understand. It's incredibly, the structure is incredibly simple. Um, all the, you know, how, why, what, when, where questions, they're all answered. You don't have any problem knowing who you're in the room with, who's talking to who. It is not difficult, but it is incredibly long. So would you recommend it as an audio book? We yeah. can go for our walk. Yeah. And now, now, because I downloaded it from Audible, they've now started charging. Mm -hmm. um, so now you have to pay $7.99. Perhaps you can get it through the library. Though, but it is if you listen box. to it and then check against the Terence Kilmartin edited text. The other thing is if you're going to embark on it, 
Terence Kilmartin um, did a guide. So it's a list of all the characters and all the plot lines and so forth. And that's really useful because you can be... In, in the book, you will have a thousand pages sometimes between events. So there's a very, very... The, at the beginning of the book, there's this description of, of Marcel meets a man in, in duck trousers with um, Odette, who becomes Swan's wife. He just meets them on his walk. He's a little boy. He pays no attention. And it's Baron Charlus, who's a sort of major character. And a thousand pages later, he's going to a concert. And there is Charlus, who is now old and broken and defeated. And he remembers seeing this man when he had his walk with Odette in his duck trousers. And you, but you have to wait all those pages. for the, And the connection is absolutely brilliant. And the way Proust does it, it is exactly how the human brain works. He hasn't thought about that meeting for 40 years until he meets them on the steps before they go into the concert. So it's truth to the way human memory works. It's, it's capricious, it's not logical, mm. but it's brilliant. Mm. Emily. Match that, <laughs> or not. Well, <laughs> I've only read the first book of Proust. It was very, very good. But, I mean, it's, it's, it, those sentences are really long. You get so lost in them, but it is amazing. I mean, and also incredibly funny. I have a brother who reads a particular passage from Swan's Way, which is about this very social climbing, Le Grandin, I can't remember what he is. Grandin, He's like yeah. a local. Yeah. And his interaction with the, is it the Duchess outside Gomantis, the church? Yeah. And it is the funniest thing. He reads the same passage every single year. And we never read, need him to read a different passage because it is hysterically funny. It takes about 20 minutes and then we're done. I'm done with Proust for a year. <laughs> um, is it a family so, thing? Do you gather? Yes. We That's always, well, we're so, we, we, we've had dinner and we're so sick of each other at that stage. There's like 25 people. Everybody has been shouting at each other for the entire day. Like not angry shouting, usually, every once in a while. Mostly it's just shouting to be heard. And I have a lot of siblings and they're very, very, very noisy. It's kind of big and family stuff. I'm one of seven. Completely, so right? And Christmas Day and you've all done it. And everyone is just exhausted by the shouting. And you need somebody to just impose quiet for a little bit. So we have now the habit of doing like a few readings. And my brother's very, very good at reading. And he picked that particular piece of Bruce about five years ago. And every year we just make him do the same one because it is incredibly, incredibly funny. It's really good. His attention to physical detail. There's details about the quivering of the fleshy rump of Le Grandin as he sort of bows over the hand of the Duchess, and it is absolutely hysterical. So, Carla's right. I'm actually going to nix my second choice, and I'm going to take Priest with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I can't take Priest, Okay, so in between, so I picked two novels because I am... Um, I'm going to, yeah, so in between the two novels, I decided I'd better do like a palate cleanse and pick some non-fiction. So, in fact, I've selected, so I picked Essays by Joan Didion, of which I have read many, but I picked a book that I haven't read. It's called Let Me Tell You What I Mean. Um, and it's essays by Joan Didion, so I haven't read these particular ones, which is why I'm bringing them, but I've read other of her essays, and what I wanted from the non-fiction choice was something that... So I'm really... Like, fiction I understand much better than I understand non-fiction, and I'm incredibly driven by narrative. What happens next? What happens next? 
So when I read nonfiction, I read it differently and it takes me much longer because there isn't necessarily a what happens next. It's really observational with her and she makes these really interesting connections, some of which I don't understand because they're very American and they're very specific to her and the time and place in which she wrote them, which I am not familiar with. But that doesn't matter to me because she's so good at making the connection, putting two things together and making something that is bigger than either of them and taking a very small piece of the world that she is looking at in that moment and making it say something about a much bigger view of the world. And I really love the way she does it. And it does take me quite a long time to stick with it and understand it and kind of mull over it. So that was what I wanted from the, you know, between the two big novels that I picked. I wanted something short and concise and interesting and demanding in a completely different way. And so that was why I picked Joan and that's what she's going to do for me, I hope. Do either of you, have either of you read much Joan Didion? read a bit. I saw a great documentary, or maybe even two documentaries mm. um, about her life. Like It was quite a tragic life as well. Did she move from New York, or she had a home in California? Cause yeah, was right? and she and lived in New York for a while and then went back. Lost a daughter? Lost yeah, Juanita, mm -hmm. af same t after her husband died. Yeah. So mm. that was the year of magical thinking. And yes. then... It was an extraordinary mm. memoir. And the idea is that thinking back and how could I have changed it? How well, could she, it, Yeah, she yeah. kept his shoes because he was coming back. Yeah. Although he was dead. Why would you throw away his shoes? Because he'll need them and his suits. Well, I wear my mother's dressing gown. Yeah. As a little but, nod to her. Yeah. But she, her magical thinking, thinking was that he was yeah. going to just... He'd need his shoes. He'd come in and she'd yeah. make dinner and light yeah. the fire and, and he'd say, where are my shoes? I think it's very hard for people to understand that someone is gone. Yeah. It takes a very, very, very long time uh, yeah. to really... I mean, obviously, you, you know it, you know, the forefront of your brain, but I think it takes an incredibly long time. I know people who lost somebody very dear to them, and they still talk about that person in the present mm. tense. He thinks, he does, and they do it completely instinctively because they have not yet mm. reached a point where they feel deep in themselves that this person is gone. I mm. mean, you know, sometimes we, I don't know, yeah, 20 years later. You Maybe it's an act of love as well, though. You know, to keep them in the present is an act of love. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it, it's like it's the idea of holding two opposing ideas in your head totally. that someone is dead, but they are also alive with you mm. because of the life. Yeah, and I think did you want to here? I feel alive. Pardon? Did you want to come in here? Um, about Didion or for my next whatever. Um, I'll move on to mine, I guess. Okay. Um, so the one I've cho the next one I've chosen is The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. I don't know if any of you have read it, but it won the Pulitzer Prize back in, I think, 2007. Now that's Oscar Wilde, not Oscar <laughs> Wilde, just in case anyone... Um, Although he had a pretty wondrous life too, Oscar did, Wilde, yeah. didn't he? He did. Um, and I guess I chose this one because it kind of represents like a kind of... A, a tradition, not quite a genre, but a sort of a, a type of book, I guess, which is the hyphenated American novel. So, like, for example, um, Gary Steingart's The Russian Debutant's Handbook um, is about kind of the Russian Jewish experience in America, emigre experience in America. Um, Gary Steingart is one of the funniest writers around, if you haven't come across him. Um, I'm thinking of Jeffrey Eugenides' uh, Middlesex, which is a brilliant book about the 
Greek American community. Mm. You could you could do you could work through you know Irish America. I'm thinking Alice McDermott chasing Billy, but you know basically every kind of immigrant group to the states has produced a you know a brilliant uh, novel or even a, a tradition of novels. So. Um, Oscar Wilde is Dominican, so this is a portrait as well as being, you know, a very entertaining kind of um, uh, family epic. It's also uh, indirectly a portrait of the Dominican experience in in New York or in in the United States. Um, but it's also the character moves back back and forth between uh, New York City and the Dominican Republic, uh, which is in the, the Caribbean. And so you get a portrait of two quite distinct societies. Um, so it had been a dictatorship. I, it certainly did. Like, you know, he's, he's like, even when he's writing with terrible things, like Trujillo was, you know, he sort of described him as the sort of the original strongman or, you know, the original kleptocrat who sort of seizes power and I think he was in power from 30, the 30s to 61. I think, I think it was, 31 years he was in yeah, power. They called actually, him the chief, didn't they? Yes, it was actually Kennedy who sort of decided enough is enough. Like it was a kind of like an American puppet regime, and basically Kennedy decided this is, you know, this isn't good PR or whatever. Like he's got to go. But it's interesting because there's a thing in the book about the this kind of curse which is associated for centuries with uh, the Dominican Republic or. Um, dating back to the colonization. I think, I'm not sure who the admiral was who kind of conquered um, the, the island, Hispaniola, which is Haiti and Dominican Republic. Um, and he came to an unhappy end. And there's this long tradition of either families or individuals transgressing and then getting punished. The, the curse is called F-U-K-U with an accent. So I'm not <laughs> sure if it's Fuku or whether it's Fuku or whatever. Is it a um, made-up word or is it a real word? Honestly, I don't know. I didn't research it, but I can it's, see how it might be. Um, but it's kind of really gratifying when uh, you know, baddies come to a, a horrible end. It's one of the great things about the book that, you know, even like, so, so he mentions in passing... Uh, Trujillo, this dictator, and then there's footnotes, which can be very off-putting in a book, mm. but actually when you start reading the footnotes, they're as funny or as entertaining as the uh, as the main text or whatever, and it's just that, like, you know, I'm re I was rereading it in, in preparation for this, and... Takes it seriously. You know, well, I kind of think if I'm bringing it to the desert <laughs> island, I don't, I don't want to be sort of disappointed, um, and I'm not disappointed at all. Like, I would, honestly, I challenge anybody, read the first... Um, the the preface, the introduction to to this novel, and you know if it doesn't grip you, well then obviously each to their own. But I think it's absolutely. I mean, it won lots of funny. awards. In fairness, it's got magical realism in it as well. Yep, don't be afraid. You know, <laughs> it's you know it's done really well. Like you know, and it's kind of you know it's like the the main character. Um, he's into uh, genre fiction. He's into crime, and he's into like science fiction or whatever. And he's kind of he describes actually how coming from the Dominican Republic to New York City from the third world to the first world is such a. I'm thinking I've just interviewed Roy Foster, so I'm thinking bouleversement because that's the word that Roy uses. Um, Let's have that again, bouleversement. Bouleversement, as in kind of I can't even remember the, what the, you would just say. See, like, you really of, learn you know, when you come from one to world the to another, and your kind of your world is turned upside down. Yeah. Um, and he says that's why you know the the kid got into science fiction because you know your mind is blown by that kind of in, in his live reality. He went from one very different reality to another, um, and like and so therefore science fiction is. is the only way to kind of make sense mm. of 
of the world or the different that sounds worlds. brilliant. Come here now, before we go on to your other choices, do, do you not have any dirty reading secrets? <laughs> These are all really, you know, high-powered books in many ways. Is there nothing that's... Are you looking for a book that falls open at a different No, 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 I don't exactly mean it in that way. I mean, you know, just... It's a comfort read, if you like. Do any of you have something that, look, you don't think it's... Um, you're necessarily going to... Julie Cooper. There you go. I, I 100%, actually, yeah. which is probably dirty, some of them, in both senses of the word. Oh, yeah, I love Julie Cooper. Yeah. I mean, not... There are many. There's one out just now called Taco, which is about football. And honestly, I'm not sure that I will be able to with regret. I think, like, I think the heyday may be past. But like those earlier, like those rivals and writers, I love those books. I think they're absolutely brilliant. I think she's an amazing storyteller. And um, yeah, I mean, really, truly, if I got forewarning of the desert island and I'm literally there going, war and peace writers, war and peace writers, like, I don't know. <laughs> she's, she's so nice. When I was a young reporter, she had me to lunch. And, really? Uh, uh, it was the first time I came across the concept of uh, the palate cleanser between uh, courses. I wasn't brought up with palate cleansers, <laughs> one of seven, a bit like what you were describing, Martin, earlier, where it's like you queue up for your place at the table. But, um, there were palate cleansers between, and she was so nice to me. She was just lovely and great fun. Great fun. Oh, she's great. Very self-deprecating, yeah. you know? Um, okay, guilty secret, if you like. Carly, you must have won. Uh, M.R. James. Go on, we want to hear more. So M.R. James was the provost of Eton, I think, eventually. Um, very, very highly influenced by Sheridan Lefanu, and who he credited with the invention of the uncanny story. Dublin writer. Dublin writer. Could have been Lefanu. I love Uncle Silas. But M.R. James writes these really strange, creepy ghost stories. Whistle and I'll Come is the most famous, yeah. perhaps. You, man finds old Anglo-Saxon whistle. Unfortunately, it summons old Nick, who you don't really want <laughs> in your hotel bedroom. <laughs> rearranging. a chilling story. Chilling story, yeah. And there's just something, and M.R. James is so fussy and fastidious and it always starts off in an Oxford college and people are not always but people are talking and there's lots of antiquarian malarkey and so and so reads a manuscript and you're thinking yes and then out of left field will come something really horrible and shocking and and it it it, it knocks you over and then is gone and you think wow um and then it you know then it goes on being the kind of you know Oxford Cambridge, posh, antiquarian kind of thing. I have a, I, I love M.R. James, mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, I have a collection. Actually, you've thought of a guilty secret now, haven't yeah, you? I'll, I'll come to that. Actually, I, I mention M.R. James in the preface to, to my book, Dirty Linen, because there's a, it's the story of, uh, in part, the story of a historian who started off in teaching in my primary school. Um, and he wrote a book called The Bloody Bridge about the 1641 Rebellion, mm. um, sort of contesting the Trinity College depositions, which are you know, partly propaganda treatments of how Protestants were, were massacred by um, a Catholic uprising in the north. Um, now, this guy, uh, Fitzpatrick, his name was, um, and he actually came to a kind of a, 
a typical fate of, a, of an academic who sort of interferes with the past. He was actually researching another book in the Four Courts, and he caught cholera from the unfumigated papers mm. that he was studying, and he died of typhoid in 19... Whoa. This is a real story? This is a real story. Oh, okay, I was seeing fiction here. No, no, this is a real story. So it kind of, for me, it was sort of symbolic of the toxicity of mishandling the past. Yeah. Mm. Um, ah, okay. So that's just a throwaway, drag my book in by its coattails <laughs> at every opportunity. Um, so Guilty Secrets, you know, Hidden Pleasures. Um, like, I like crime fiction, so I grew up reading um, Agatha Christie or whatever. So, you know, I'd say probably, you know, if you just, I don't know, things like Michael Connolly um, or Dennis Lahan, I would sort of, you know, dip into that. Um, uh, Favourite um, Christie uh, detective, Poirot or...? Um, else. Yeah, probably Marple. Marple. Really? For me, Poirot. I go Marple. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I would have thought you were the Poirot era with your Guinness girls. Also Marple. I mean, they are they're leading leading she parallel not lives. The two of them. I don't know how they never collide with each other. But his is a more glamorous world, definitely, which I do love. It's the serviced flat in London. Yes. The mansion. Yeah. yeah, and the Orient Express and the you know the Nile cruise and stuff. But she's really, like, I think that she's quite spooky in terms of her uh, kind of adroit reading of psychology. I just think the psychology is better in the Marple books. Mm -hmm. The poorer ones are slightly overblown. I think that the whole glamour thing overwhelms them a little bit, whereas she is just, like, forensic in her ability to dissect what makes people do terrible things. Mm -hmm. And there's something about a murder on a small scale that I find more terrifying. The big murder on the Orient Express and, you know, everybody's guilty. Ooh, spoiler, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's you're, you're, fun. Yeah. But the little one, like, you know, that small right. murder in the vicarage. one about where the, the motive was um, somebody going to an event with scarlet fever or something. Yes. With yeah, you know, yeah, terrible yeah. And repercussions. Terrible repercussions um, because somebody's daughter. Very believable yeah. motive. So, yeah. yeah. I yeah, 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 yeah. She's much more evil, I feel, Marple or her. Persuaded. Carlo? Do you want to come in there? Are we going to move on to the highbrow again? Um, you mean more guilty pleasures? Oh, listen, do we want guilty pleasures? Or, <laughs> or are we, we talking do. about detective? Because if it's detective fiction, for me, it's, it's, it's Simonon. Um, sure, Simonon. The well, he wrote them really quickly, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, seven days, and he would type a 35 to 40,000 word book. Jesus. In seven days, and it would be copy perfect, and it could go off um, wow. to the publisher. Um, he once wanted to have himself in a glass box in a French department store, and he would write the book <laughs> in a week. Jesus. Um, he never did that. Uh, he, I bet his kids had to tiptoe around. Um, he had a very, very good but tragic relations with his children. Um, he's and most he, notorious for his relationships with lots and lots of women. Yeah, yeah and I think had, seven days he was turning them over and pretty much had, at the same rate as his novels. Indeed. <laughs> but the glass box do, upon. do not do not think that this um, do do not let his uh, reputation as a writer be impugned by your knowledge of his private life, which was yeah, very no, saucy and colourful. You're quite right to remind so us. So his roman d'or, so not the Maigret. The Maigret novels are brilliant, but the roman d'or are what he calls his his, his hard novels, and they are about crime, and they are incredibly spe spe um, sp specific. So he would decide, 
Right, he's gonna, he would take his canal boat to some miserable town in the north of France. He would moor, and he'd have an idea he'd come across in the paper for about, about a murder, and he would go, right, that's where the man's going to live, that's where his mother lives, here's the police station, and he would work it all out. And then he would write these novels of incredible darkness. Um, the most famous is... Um, uh, it's called Leave of Absence, the translation. It really means on license. And it's about a murderer who gets out and he's given a job. And what he doesn't realize is the woman who's given him the job, she runs an inn and a shop, knows about his crime, and actually is lining him up either to commit an offense or to take responsibility for an offense, or best of all, commit the offense and take responsibility because he's on license, because he's a murderer. It's a fantastic story. Mm. It's really, uh, and, but also, you know, very dark. There's a bit of a French theme with your choices, Carlo. Yeah, yeah um, maybe I should really be born French, <laughs> not Irish. <laughs> there was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to go through you really quickly now, because I want to bring in the audience. Um, you have one more choice each, so just very quickly, what is it? Martin, I'll start with you. Uh, me, it's The Lost Soldiers Song by Patrick McGinley, who's a Donegal writer. It's a book set in the War of Independence, and writing it, he was influenced by both Roy Foster's history writing, um, but also Ernie O'Malley's On Another Man's Wound, which he says is the only well-written novel with, or sorry, uh, memoir about the War of Independence. It's not one damn thing after another. It's actually sort of, the guy's got a bit of perspective and also a literary style. So it's basically, it's an anti-war novel in the tradition of Barbus or Remark, um, but it's set in Donegal, and it's basically, the idea is, it's high-handed imperialism meets um, high-minded barbarism. So it's very, very powerful, uh, brilliantly written, and hardly known. It came out in the 90s. Yeah. I interviewed him. He's from Donegal, emigrated in 1962. As far as I know, he's still alive. Is he in he, England? He did, when you say emigrated, is he in England? He is, yeah. yeah. Um, so he did Bogmail, which was um, made into a TV drama, Murder in Eden. He yeah, did. I associate him with crime. Yeah, like this was a change for him from like kind of comic thrillers, I would say, okay. would be his thing, like Bogmail or The Fantasist, which I think was Goosefoot originally, or vice versa, again, made for television. So despite having his work adapted for the screen, he's not that high profile, uh, and yet very, very, very good, I think. It's okay. a really powerful good recommendation. And by the way, all these recommendations are in a sheet in your goodie bag when you leave. So um, if, if any of them grab your attention, you can look them up and borrow them from the library or buy them from the bookshop. Emily. Uh, okay, final choice, total comfort read. Uh, in fact, like it is almost my Jilly Cooper, Vanity Fair by William Thackeray, which I have read a lot, but I never stop loving reading it. It's set around the Battle of Waterloo before and the years immediately afterwards. And it's, it's, I just adore the unashamed effort of one young woman with absolutely nothing except her looks and her wits, and it's her wits that are so irresistible about her. How she goes about getting the life that she wants. She is absolutely the most ruthless and manipulative. I honestly think if you wrote her as a heroine now for like women's fiction, they would go, she's much too horrible, you can't. She's unscrupulous, but she is just unbelievably brilliant, and I adore her. And the book is just great. It is a pure comfort read. It's really funny, it's really involved. Great characters, 
big storylines, but also really good detail and psychology. And yeah, it's just like, like pure comfort. If you've, if you've done Jilly Cooper, move on to Vanity Fair. That's, uh, that's Becky Sharp, and if she yes. lived today, she'd be an influencer or something. She'd be or she'd everything. Be Madonna, or she'd be in the White House. <laughs> Carlo. Um, I love Vanity Fair. Um, I would just say, it, 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 to me, it reads as the sort of takedown of the kind of Boris Johnsons of this world. You know, there's a particular, particular kind of demographic in England which is greedy, venal, entitled, and narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And um, this book is the dagger in the heart of that. Mm, but she wants to be part of that world. Well, she doesn't end well either. I mean, no. she but also... tell them the want of trying. She, she tries, but she doesn't. <laughs> I mean, the point is, is that, you know, you know, greed doesn't... Pay. It, but yeah. it's the Victorian you, you, era, it's not well, to be allowed. It, you, you know, I think Boris Johnson's doing okay so far. <laughs> Carla, what's your choice? Uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson. Because? It's a non-fiction book which contains all the different strategies that non-fiction writers have deployed. So, I'm a writer. So basically, I'm reading to steal. I say I'm reading for love, but I'm not. <laughs> and you read this book and you go, if you're interested in non-fiction, and as I get older, I am more and more, and you just go, oh God, that's what Paul Theroux does in Savidia's Shadow. Oh God, that's what Ruth Skur does in her life of Aubrey. Oh God, and it just goes, that's what Lytton Strachey does in Eminent Victorians. You realize that Boswell and Johnson together, because they had this strange, they were, both, they were both depressives. They were secret sharers and they formed this symbiotic relationship which fed into the writing of this monumental biography, which may not be factually correct. In fact, it isn't factually correct. For instance, Johnson's relationship with Richard Savage, the murderer, Boswell sort of doesn't really, he sort of airbrushes it aside. Um, but as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a book about the different, many different strategies that nonfiction can approach, particularly if it's biography, but all sorts of other kinds of nonfiction, this is the way, this is the book that it all starts with. Okay, and it's not even French. Look, do you no. have a, Luc O'Neill, do you have a, a recommendation for us for I'm, our I'm, desert island? I'm trying to think after all these ones, but um, so last year I was the chair of the judging panel for the Royal Society Science Book of the Year. Now the Royal Society is a very important scientific society, you know, and we read 60 books that published that year on a science theme. And the one that won is Tell called- Tell me it's Frankenstein. It wasn't Frankenstein, it should have been Frankenstein, it should have been. But the one that won was called Entangled Life by a guy called Merlin Sheldrake, and it's all about fungi. Mm. It sounds most unprepossessing, doesn't it? But um, it's a fantastic book. <laughs> I mean, it talks about like yeast, for instance, and how yeast makes alcohol. There'd be no civilization without alcohol, you see, and he makes that case. Uh, there's a chapter on psilocybin and magic mushrooms mm. and how they affect our mind and all this kind of thing, you know. And then it's, it's quite environmentally um, friendly, or whatever the word is, aware. Uh, there's the wood wide web. Did you ever hear that right here? So trees communicate through a fungal network in the soil. And if you break that network, the trees die, you know, and, and we're killing these fungi. So it's a very, very um, relevant book for these times. But Merlin's a great writer. I mean, he's called Sheldrake. What a great name for a guy writing about having trips on mushrooms. Merlin Sheldrake, you know. Um, but it's a superb book. And the other book that we, we read that came close to winning was by, a, and her name is escaped. Emily was her first name. I can't remember her second name. But it's called Darwin's Garden. And where Charles Darwin grew mm. up, there was a famous garden. 
And that's when he begins to become fascinated as a child about evolution and plants and all this kind of thing. And his sisters, it's in Shropshire, his sisters maintain the garden while he's away on his voyage in the Beagle. And he's sending back letters to them. How's the garden doing? You know, he was really into this garden. And this woman, she lived in this village herself and discovers the garden. It was kind of forgotten, the garden, actually. And, and she organized the local community to renovate Darwin's old garden, you see. It's a wonderful book. It's about her life as well. It's, she brings it, she, ha she has a child while she's living there. She's thinking about evolution all the time. So it's a, it's a kind of a nice reverie, I suppose you might call it. Can that. you visit the garden? You can. Now? Yeah, yeah they, because of her, actually, they've renovated Fantastic. part of it, you know? So it's, that's another Great one. It's called Darwin's Garden. That's what, yeah. Thank you for those. Now, do we have any questions or recommendations from the floor? And I'm peering here now because we've got lights in our eyes. Does anyone have anything they want to add? Any? Right, well, if there isn't, I'm actually going to make... Oh, was there a hand up there? No. I'm going to re make a recommendation myself, which is Lolly Willows. Has anyone read that? Come on, talk about it then, if you've read it. Uh, well, no, I mean, I'm terrible because I can't ever remember what I've read. Sylvia Townsend Warner. In fact, Warner. it's Sylvia Townsend Warner. And I loved it, but I loved it less than this, the one you gave me by Sylvia Townsend Warner, The Flint Anchor. Was her last book. Yeah, brilliant book, absolutely brilliant. Set in the 1930s, which is why I started write, reading them, because that's the era that I write about. And I think in terms of research, Writing stuff written at the time is completely, I mean, like it's like a primary source, it's amazing. But I do remember loving Lolly Willows and finding it very charming, but I preferred the Flint Anchor. So you talk about Lolly Willows. Lolly Willows is brilliant because it's about um, um, a spinster lady who's um, uh, the family user as a kind of handy, useful aunt. And she thinks to herself, enough already, and she takes herself off to the country and discovers that the village she's staying in, it's called something like Great Mop, or Little Mop, I forget which, um, but there's a coven of witches there, and it's a kind of an empowerment thing for these women. Uh, she has a little familiar, a, a black cat called Vinegar, and um, she meets this country gentleman who turns out to be the devil and he doesn't really want her to do evil he's, he's kind of quite distant from them all but there's a wonder i think perhaps the it's the idea that women are sticks of dynamite and uh, lolly comes to that conclusion women are sticks of dynamite and once they accept that it doesn't matter what the world thinks of them, they can do what they like. So I've always loved that. Really ahead of its time. Re I mean, I don't know, it's probably about 90 years old now, but uh, really ahead of its time. Does anyone have anything they want to share with the, the conversation? No? The panel? Any last recommendations before we end? No, except that I want to read everybody's recommendations. I want to read all of these. Also, Luke's, that fungi book had caught my attention, and I'm very bad at reading nonfiction, but I really want to read that. I think it's really fascinating. I want to read the Darwin book. Yeah, totally. yeah. Totally. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. I was just having a conversation with Carlo beforehand about Bridget O'Connor, and I mentioned in passing um, Jerry O'Neill, J.M. Mm. O'Neill, mm. who's another London Irish uh, writer. He's actually from County Clare. Um, but he wrote under J.M. O'Neill, and he wrote two brilliant books about the London Irish experience, Duffy is Dead and Open Cut. So he had a really interesting life. He worked in Kenya for Barclays Bank, then came back to London. I think he worked for Murphy's, the big 
construction company for 30 years as they're kind of on their finance side. Then he opened a pub. He was a pub landlord in the 70s, the Duke of Wellington in the Balls Pond Road, which I think um, Carlo had been to. Yeah. Um, so he knew the world which he was writing about, and it's, but it's a world that very few people have explored or written about, like you know, Irish pub life in London or you know, working on the sites in London. So I guess Donald Macaulay has written an Irishman, Irish Navi or whatever, or Irishman's Diary. But um, these two books are brilliant. They should really be made into films. Um, one set in kind of like a pub landlord where there's a death and the cover-up, whatever, and the other one is set very much in the kind of uh, the building sites and the bit of an uh, underworld novel, but I'd really recommend both of them to, mm. to anyone who's interested in that. So, immigrant experience, Sam Selvin, Lonely Londoners. Sam Selvin was a Jamaican, I think, radio operator or navigator. He was in the RAF, you know, he joined and came and then stayed. Um, then left London in disgust and went to Canada, was a royal court um, playwright, did a number of plays at the royal court in the 50s and the 60s. He was a sort of countercultural figure. But Lonely Londoners is about lonely Jamaicans and Barbadians, guys who came over in the 50s. Oh, my God, it is a staggering work. It's just about being on the bus and being cold and having to decide, are you going to jump off the bus and walk to work and spend your 2p on some tea, or are you going to stay on the bus and buy the ticket, and maybe someone will drop a fag which you can pick up off the floor if you're on the top deck? Things like that. But Carly, and you've living in, living, about in, living in digs in Notting Hill, being you know, turned away from pubs, not allowed into dance halls, going to Shabines you know, try, trying to understand what England and London particularly was like, dealing with the cold. Selvin is fantastic. But you've written about that world too, from being a, a boy in London. And yeah. The, I, 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 it sticks oh. in my mind about the um, Caribbean conductors yeah. who were kind to yes. you. Yes, yes. But I, I'm, I, I would love to say I'm not as good a writer as Mr. Yeah. Selvin. Um, his ability to just describe truth, economic, social, cultural isolation as a truth is absolutely fantastic. I mean, as a, you know, when I was living in London in the 60s and 70s, one was aware of these sorts of things, but only through, it was the, the contact, the understanding was surface. Mm -hmm. You kind of glimpse, you'd sort of get it, but you wouldn't know the depth of it because you weren't in people's houses. Selvin takes you home with these people. And he's brilliant. Mm, that's a great line. He takes you home with them. Well, look, we've come to the end of our Reader's Day. Um, thank you to our panel. Can we give them a round of applause? Martin. <laughs> Martin Doyle, Emily Hurricane and Carlo Gabler. Uh, thank you to The Lexicon for hosting our Reader's Day, to Kira Jones and Susan Lynch, who helped put it together. Uh, thanks also to Debray, to Caitlin and Oshin, I think, who've very kindly been there manning and womaning the book stand, uh, which is still open. Our writers are available to sign. Luke O'Neill is still here. And read, read, read. And thanks to you, Martina. They're amazing. Amazing organization of a really great day. Brilliant. Thank you. Mm.